Carla and her, friend, her husband Steve and their son Jackson and their other little bambino who's on the way when? Uh, July the 8th, 12 weeks. <laughs> 12 weeks, third trimester. Uh, um, uh, live in Chichester, uh, they're dear friends. Um, we've been friends for many, many years. Carla is kind of this Jekyll and Hyde character, if I'm, I'm really honest with you. Uh, by day, she is the director of prayer for the 24-7 movement. She helps people with prayer all around the world. She's utterly brilliant. Her life direction was changed by stepping into a prayer room as a student in Chichester when Sammy and I were the sort of student workers, and uh, we've been journeying together ever since. She travels and speaks around the world. She's an amazing leader. That's by day. By night, she morphs into this kind of vampish lead singer of this, uh, this amazing covers band called the DeLoreans who, who just lead parties all around the country are in phenomenal demand. I tried to book them once. They're like booked for the next two years or something. And, and uh, they're just utterly brilliant. And uh, Carla is kind of the... The force of nature behind that, uh, leading everyone at their parties, weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever, in singing the latest cheesy hits. So uh, this is Carla. Uh, she's great fun. And I couldn't think of anyone better to help us launch this new series on friendship. We are doing this uh, series inspired by two people. The first is Eugene Peterson, uh, who translated the Bible uh, into his message version and is now a very old man living in a hut in Montana, the, the house in which he grew up. And uh, when my friend went to see Eugene, he said, I've realized the whole Bible boils down to this word friendship. And uh, that's the heart of it all. After all his, his whole life, he said, this is the key, friendship. Friendship with God, friendship with one another. And uh, the other person that's inspired this series is Sam uh, Miller. Because I was thinking about Sam uh, a few months ago, and he... He'll hate me saying this, but he's just such a great friend to so many people. It's like he's got a gift of uh, quiet friendship. And I know that springs from his friendship with God. And I thought, wouldn't it be great just to spend four weeks becoming better friends of God and of one another? And so we're going to look at friendship with, one, uh, with God today. We're going to look at friendship with one another. How do we grow in our friendships, our relationships? Uh, friendship with ourselves we all know that some people find it hard to receive love because they're wrapped up with self-hatred. And then what do we do when friendships go wrong? Because let's be honest, they do sometimes. So that's the four-part series. The aim is we grow in friendships uh, together. So anyway, let's open our hearts to Carla Harding. She's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Pete. There's actually nothing more embarrassing than being introduced by Pete. The band is a very cheesy covers band. We'd love to come play at your parties, but it's not that impressive. <laughs> and it's really, really lovely to come and be with you guys this morning. Um, I was saying in the first service, I feel something like a cousin in the family. Um, I have the absolute pleasure of being part of 24-7, as Pete mentioned. And in that news uh, update video that Adam did, that hut behind him, Allen House Pavilion, that's where I spend my working week with the rest of the team. There's so many good friends in this family. I love you dearly. And Steve and I and Jackson have been really excited about coming up to be with you today. So thank you so much for having me and for giving me half an hour of your time to explore this idea of friendship with God I was actually really pleased to have this topic because I think, I think this topic is something that applies to everyone at every possible stage of faith. 
whether you would not call yourself a Christian and you're just checking out Christ, whether you're a new acquaintance and you're in the first flush and excitement of that relationship, or whether you have been a faithful follower over many, many years, this one question applies to us all. How do we grow in friendship with God? I find this a helpful question because my journey of faith is that I didn't come to Jesus in a dun-dun-dun moment. I came to Jesus very gradually over my whole lifetime. As a child, I was captured by the mystery of God. The idea of who is he? This expansive person, this figure, this almighty being. As a teenager, I was challenged and inspired by Jesus as a leader. As a 20-something, I discovered God as father in prayer and started to develop that relationship of father-daughter with him. And in my 30s, it's God as king that has often shaped the way I interact with him. I love that he gives us all these different names, all these different sides of his character to deepen and expand our relationship with him. In recent years, God as friend has been my challenge. If I'm really honest, friendship with God is not my natural paradigm. It's not the way that I automatically access him. You know, we sing songs about, I am a friend of God, whoa, oh, oh. And we, we read scriptures about it and we, we talk about it, we pray about it. But actually, half the time, if I'm really honest, guys, I feel like it's a little bit presumptuous. This is me. I'm giving you my head noise, not necessarily what the Lord says. I stand there going, I feel way more comfortable talking about you as Almighty and way more comfortable talking about you as Lord. But talking about you as friends, oh, that's a challenge for me. This is the journey I've been on. Now, this journey has also been prompted by one other thing, and that is my son, who I've brought a picture of. This is Jackson. He's two. He'll turn three in just a couple of weeks. He's a little joy. He's a little sweetie. He's at a park currently because he was brilliant in the first service, but we thought it was a bit unfair to make him contain all his three-year-old energy for any longer. He's off climbing something right now. Now, Jackson, since I've been able to interact with him and since he's been able to talk, I've been trying to help him explore who God is. If there's any other parents in this room, maybe, maybe you've done the same thing with your children at different ages in your life. Or maybe you've experienced your parents do this for you. And actually, I found it quite a challenge to work out how I engage a two-year-old with the eternal, omnipresent, not visible at this present time, God of the universe. <laughs> Jackson can't see him. He can't touch him right now. He can speak to him, so we do that quite a lot. But how do I explain God, the unknowable God, to Jackson? We uh, actually have a lot of fun with this. You should see how proud he is of knowing the Lord's Prayer. He can pray it, and it's the cutest thing you've ever seen. He just like, he like prays it, he goes, Amen! And then just sort of looks at you. We're like, yeah, well done. I know you don't understand half of it, but I'm really proud. <laughs> We also have a lot of times where we think, oh my gosh, what are we teaching him? This morning, Jackson and I were playing hide and seek while Steve was in the shower. And uh, he's at that classic age where they think if you can't see their eyes, you can't see them. So you find like this bottom and legs sticking out from behind things. You can't find me, mummy. This morning, he was under my duvet in my bed. 
Jackson loves this game. It's one of his absolute favorites. Now, I am very good at being dramatic. So I like to bring character to this game. You know, it's like method acting. I walk into the room and I'm like, oh, where's Jackson? I've lost him. What will my husband say? And Jackson loves it. I hear this little giggle come from wherever it is he's hiding. <laughs> you can't find me, mummy. Oh, no, I've lost my son. Like, I really, really ham it up. And this morning I thought, I'm going to take this performance to a whole new level. Jesus, help me find my son. And this voice pops up from underneath the duvet going, no. <laughs> Jackson very confidently hears the word of the Lord and shares it. Frequently, he'll pray for things like the train station, chocolate, sweets. And Jesus replies in a beautiful voice, yes, Jackson. And then he just smiles at me. Jesus said yes. <laughs> That's quite sweet. But we also had this one incident where, um, Steve, you know how all toddlers at the moment are obsessed with iPhones or tablets or any kind of technology. Steve was showing Jackson Siri on his iPhone. And he was like, going, hey, Siri, can you show us pictures of, I don't know, balloons? And Siri would show pictures. And he said, Jackson, would you like a go? So he hands Jackson his iPhone. And Jackson hits the Siri button and goes, um, God? <laughs> can I uh, look at a picture of a train? And Steve's like, let's take that back and let's talk about how this is not God. <laughs> he puts it in his back pocket. I wasn't there, but he told me Jackson literally threw himself to the floor and went, where have you gone, God? And had a little existential crisis at two, bless him. Now, sometimes I feel like we're doing an okay job of trying to introduce Jackson to the faith that we love and the person we adore. And sometimes in those moments I think, dear Lord, where on earth did he get that from? But the thing I know for sure is this. I do not want to teach my son a moral code, a set of behaviours, rules or information about God. I want to give him the ability to have a relationship with a person. So within my own walk and within my... <laughs> Brand new walk of parenting. This question of how do you develop friendship with the person of God has been coming back to me again and again. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to start with one of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible. If you like reading along, it's going to come up on the screens, but if you prefer your own Bible translation, it's going to be from John 15. We're going to look at 1 to 15. Feel free to grab it. This is the context of this passage. Jesus is at his last supper with his disciples. It's Easter week. He goes that tonight he's going to be arrested. Tomorrow he's likely to be executed. He's walking into it with his eyes open. This is the meal. He sits down with his closest friends and speaks to them. This passage comes in the middle of what he says. Now, if I were Jesus, if I were in this situation, I knew I was about to be executed and I had a meal with my closest friends, I think I'd know that every single word counts. These are the words he speaks. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Yet every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You have already been cleaned because of the word I have spoken to you. 
Remain in me and I will remain in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Such branches are thrown away and wither. They are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master, he does not know his master's business. I call you friends because everything the Father has made known to me, I have made known to you. I really love that passage. It's one of my all-time favourites. And I've probably looked at it, heard talks on it, read it numerous times. And I have to be honest, verse 14 and 15 have never really jumped out at me before looking at this talk and studying for it. It's amazing how you can read the same passage of the Bible over and over again and something completely different hits you every time. Have you ever had that experience? Particularly verse 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Now I call you friends. Because what I've learned from the Father, I've made known to you. Now Jesus is speaking to his 12 closest friends. Some of you will be thinking, wow, Jesus is saying I get to be his friend. And some of you might be thinking, awkward. Did Jesus just call his mates his servants? (laughs) Why is Jesus talking about this? He's talking about a new dimension of relationship. But why does he make this contrast? Before we dive into friends, let's have a quick look at what he means at servant. Let's give ourselves some context. What is the journey the disciples have been on? Now, this word servant in John 15 is the Greek word doulos. Can you say doulos? That was so solemn. It was very Greek scholarly. (laughs) Doulos. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, this word doulos is actually translated slave. I no longer call you slave. Does anyone else feel like that's a touch insulting? (laughs) I'm going to be really honest. I think I'd find that a touch insulting. Why does Jesus use this word? Now, in the context of where he's speaking to, in their culture and climate, they live in the Roman Empire. And I did a little research on this. And in the Roman Empire, a fifth of the population were slaves. Take a look at the people around this room. That's one in five of the faces around you would have been in slavery in the Roman population. Slaves were the backbone of society. They were the lowest tier. 
They would do the manual labor. They were in agriculture. They were in military. Sometimes they were highly skilled, like accountants or doctors, but they all had one thing in common. What they had in common was their lives did not belong to them. They were literally property. They were owned by someone else. Why on earth would Jesus use this analogy, this word, this doulos, to describe his relationship with the disciples? Now, I want to be really clear. I don't think Jesus is endorsing slavery in any way. But I think he's grasping hold of something in this metaphor that is a lens for us into relationship with God. Interestingly, this word doulos was taken as like a badge of honor by the early church. In Romans 1 verse 1, Paul introduces himself like this. Paul, a doulos of Christ Jesus, a servant, a slave, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now this is particularly unusual because Paul's actually a Roman citizen. And to be a Roman citizen is to have your freedom and to have rights. But Paul is voluntarily giving up those rights for Jesus and saying, I am your doulos. Why is that? What does that mean? I wonder if this Jewish idea of doulos, this early church idea of doulos, was shaped by this funny little bit in Leviticus that I found, sorry, Exodus that I found, in the law of Moses. In Exodus 21, there's this odd little law that the first time I read it, I was like, why would they ever need this? And the law said this, if a Jewish man is freed after seven years of slavery, which is what they had to do, he can choose to voluntarily become a slave again. Why? Why would anybody volunteer to be a slave? In this passage, it goes on to explain, if he feels such a love and devotion to his master, he genuinely loves him, and if he feels such a love and devotion to his family, he can choose to surrender his rights to stay with them. It's a slavery not born of oppression and force, but of love. I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if this is some of the idea that's playing around in the early church's head when they take a word that is so negative to us in our climate. You know, you, sometimes I read these passages about slaves in the New Testament, I'm like, how could they not see that was so wrong? But then I wonder in a couple of hundred years, who's going to look at us and go, how could they see that was so wrong? You know, this blind spot in society, they took hold of that word and they transformed it into a word of worship. I choose to voluntarily give up my rights and willingly submit myself to Christ's authority as his servant, nay, as his slave, because I love him and I am devoted to him. This is the context that Jesus is speaking into, and it kind of makes a bit of sense. The disciples see Jesus as their rabbi, their teacher, their master, and they've been having this growing revelation that he's so much more than that, that he's God-made flesh. And it would make sense that, of course, he is the uncreated God of the universe, made flesh in this beautiful man, Jesus. Of course, it would make sense that we, as, as flawed human beings, could be nothing but worshippers of him, servants of him, obeying his commands, going where he points. I kind of, for me, when I think about friendship and servanthood, I relate more to the servant part. Because I think, yeah, that fits me. You know, I am a mortal, flawed, very grateful follower of Jesus. And I feel much more comfortable going, I will serve you. I will obey you. I'll go where you point. than to presume friendships. But Jesus flips this on his head. 
extends his arm and says, I welcome you into friendship. So why? Why change the paradigm of the relationship they already have? Why give us a new lens? When I think of friendship with God, I think of Abraham. And particularly one fantastic interchange between Abraham and God in Genesis chapter 18. If you're not familiar with it, it goes like this. God is on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah. He has heard such an outcry against what they are doing, against the sin they are committing, against the people they are hurting and oppressing, that he has come to find out for himself what is happening and judge the city. On the way, he meets Abraham, and in this part of the story, they are walking together towards Sodom. We get this amazing glimpse in verse 17 into the thought process of God. God thinks this. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, this is a funny question if God only sees Abraham as a servant. Because a servant does not need to know what his master's business is, as Jesus said. He doesn't need to know the why behind the you do. He just needs to know the command and he needs to obey. That's a servant's role. But God is asking himself, shall I treat Abraham differently? Shall I let him into what I'm thinking? Into what I'm intending? Into my plans? And he does. That's what happens. He tells Abraham what he's going to do. And then something even more incredible happens. I, I always read this and I'm kind of in awe. I think I'd be like, right, Lord, yeah. Ooh, judgment on a city. Hope you have a nice walk. I'll be going this way. <laughs> but Abraham, actually, he stands there and he goes, God, I know you are just and I know you are righteous. So I have to ask you, what if there are 50 innocent people in that city? Will you destroy them along with everyone else? And God does something amazing. He doesn't go, I smite you, old questioner. He goes, okay, Abraham, if I find 50, I won't. And if I had, if that was me and I'd realized that I had influenced God's plans, changed his, or possibly influence and change his attention, I think I'd be going, fantastic God, I'm going to exit now. <laughs> but Abraham is so bold, he will not stop there. He goes, God, what if it's 45? And God goes, okay. What if it's 40? God goes, all right, for 40, I won't do it. What if it's 30, Lord? Okay, if I find 30 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. What if it's 20, God? Okay, for 20, I'll be merciful. What if it's just 10? For 10, Abraham, I will not judge the city and destroy it. I will not destroy the innocent along with the wicked. Isn't that incredible? That is not the interchange of a servant and a master. That is the humble, confident interchange of two friends. Because friends disclose plans. Friends invite you into their thinking, not just present you with a fait accompli. And friends influence us. They shape our thinking, our actions, our decisions. And that is the incredible thing that God allows Abraham to do. I would absolutely love to be more confident in that aspect of my relationship with God. I feel like it's growing, but in complete honesty, it's only growing. <laughs> For God to let us in on his plans and then invite us to shape them, which, by the way, is exactly what he's doing in prayer. 
is the most incredible gift of friendship. So how would we develop this friendship? What keys, no matter what stage of our faith we're in, would help us do that? Well, the reason I read the whole of that passage in John 15, rather than just the end part, is I really feel like Jesus is pointing the disciples to probably more, but three particular keys I want to pull out this morning to help us grow in friendship. The first one is this. When it comes up. Embrace the secateurs. I've probably said that wrong. Sorry, gardeners. I'm terrible at that word. John 15 verse 1 and 2 say this. I am the vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. In the past, when I've read this pruning verse, I've always just wanted to skip past it because it sounded rather painful. It sounded really, really uncomfortable. When I was preparing for this, I found this beautiful verse in Proverbs I just want to share with you now. It says it's Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Now, when I think about some of the most formative challenges I've had in my life, you know, moments when people have sat me down and in genuine love and wanting the best for me have held a mirror up to something in my life and gone, Carla, we need to talk about this. Those people that have done that best have been the people that love me most because they've done it for my good. They've done it saturated in love and they know that if I can address this particular issue in my life, I will be better for it. My life will be better for it. Now, I'm not much of a gardener, so I did a little bit of research into this metaphor that Jesus did. And then I also had a fantastic conversation with Chris and Sue Leach between the two meetings, who own grapevines. Apparently, if you do not prune a vine every single year regularly, it will grow rampant and out of control. Chris was telling me there are some branches that can grow a foot in a day. That's insane. Like, they have prolific growth. But here's the issue. If you let them just grow rampant, they will grow sticks. Really, really long sticks that will bear absolutely no fruit. You have to be vicious, pruning and cutting the branches back, choosing a few to really focus on. And then those branches, instead of putting all their energy into useless growth, will put all their energy into grapes, into fruit. Now, if God is a friend I can trust who if he wants to bring up something just uncomfortable and painful in me to deal with, but I know and I trust it's for my best, then I think there's probably two kinds of things that he brings up in my life. One is probably one you've all guessed and the obvious. One is sin. He brings up the ways I'm not loving him. I'm not obeying him. I'm not honoring him. I'm making choices that hurt him. And he gives me the opportunity to repent, to embrace forgiveness, and to grow in a healthier direction. But one of the other ways I was thinking that he prunes me when I was preparing for this talk seems innocent in the way I'm growing. And that's this. Sometimes I'm as much a victim to the good directions I could grow in as I am to sin. And let me be clear about this. I'm not saying you don't want to grow in good directions, but I'm the kind of person that overfills my life. I want to overextend myself in several directions if something is really exciting and good. And actually, what I end up doing is filling all of my diary 
taking up all of my energy just because I don't know what to say no to. So one thing as I read this passage and meditated that God really challenged me on and I wanted to share in case it was relevant to any of you guys is sometimes God wants to prune good things out of our lives too. Now, don't freak out about that. It's fine. I mean, if there are things you're pursuing that are just wasting and overextending your energy, maybe you need to make some space and God wants to help you with it. So are we willing to embrace a little discomfort for long-term fruit? Are we willing to embrace the secateurs? The second thing that jumped out in this passage for me is in verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. This word remain is the word meno. It means abide, stay, wait, be present. Yesterday, I really wanted to work on this talk in the afternoon, but my husband was asleep and my son was desperate for me to play remote control cars with him. And all I could think, half my brain, I'll be super honest, was going, ah, remote control cars are such a waste of my time. I really could do with going over my talk tomorrow. But actually, I had this moment to pause and I thought, you know what, Jackson's really important. He's the most important thing to me. I'm going to sit down with him and I'm going to waste some time on him. And it, it was a wonderful waste of time. I spent half an hour hiding his remote control car under the sofa while he cracked up, hide and seek being his favorite game. And then I do accidental tricks and he thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And when I was actually having this time and I was saying, okay, God, I trust you, you will help me in my talk tomorrow even if I can't put this half an hour into it. I suddenly realized the value of what I was doing. I discovered several new ways to make my son laugh yesterday. I discovered the expression he makes when his eyes light up in delight at how fast his car can go. I learned new things about him that I would not have discovered if I sat him in front of Paw Patrol, the television, and I went off and worked on my talk. Wasting time can be the most fantastic investment in friendship. I'm very bad at it. I'm very happy to give God purposeful time. You know, to make my quiet time in the day, which is very good, by the way. This is not an argument against purposeful time. Purposeful prayer and study time, I, I love it. It's lifeblood for me. But I heard something really interesting recently, and it was about how we view prayer and that time. It went like this. Your quiet time of prayer and purpose with God is not your prayer time. It's your connection time. So that the rest of your day, whatever you are doing, is your prayer time. How are we remaining in God throughout our day? How are we wasting time on him to learn more about him? How are we exchanging a chuckle when we see something funny? How are we raising up a prayer to him when we see something we need or he or someone else needs? How are we asking him, okay, God, how do I handle this situation at work? Do you remember to? Do I remember to? I'm learning to. Some of my deepest friendships have been born out of wasted time. My friend Charlotte and I became such close friends on a road trip across the Midwest of America when we realized we'd committed to many, many, many hours in a car with each other without really knowing each other. It was a bit scary. Thankfully, it turned out we got on like a house on fire and she's one of my dearest friends. My husband Steve and I got to know each other better through wasting time building a chessboard and making chess pieces. He wooed me through chess. He was clever, because we were really great friends, but he wanted to see if we could be something more intimate. 
And this was a great way to waste time and find out. How can we waste time on God? I couldn't help thinking reading the Abraham passage that actually if I didn't give God time to speak, give him space, other than like the, right God, I'm going to give you one minute right now, my perhaps will prayer time, speak. If I was more better at listening and wasting time with him, maybe I could have more of those Abraham Genesis 18 moments where God lets me in on his plans. So how could we waste time on him? And third, and I won't go into this too deeply because it touches on the rest of your series, is this. Practice love. Verses 12 to 14 say this. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this. Then they lay down one's life for one's friend. You're my friends if you do what I command. Friendship with Jesus is affected by our friendship with other people. Isn't that interesting? I am a big fan of anyone who loves the people I really love. If anyone praises my husband, I'm like, you're obviously someone of high intelligence and excellent taste. If anyone is kind to my brother or sister, my literal brother or sister, Lisa and Adam, I just think they're the bee's knees, even if I don't know anything else about them. And I wonder if Jesus is a little bit like that. When we are kind, we are loving, and I mean that not in just an airy-fairy, I love you way. Love looks like something. Love, love is tangible. Love is sacrificial, as this verse suggests. Lay down one's life for one's friend. When we are loving to others, I wonder if it just makes Jesus go, oh, that's my girl. That's my boy. And it grows our friendship with him. There's some mysterious connection. But the other thing I really thought struck me out of this is that being a good servant helps us in our friendship with God because Jesus is saying, obey my commands. That is the skill of a good servant. Obey my commands to love each other and you'll be my friend. So how are we investing in our servanthood to invest in our friendship? They are my three keys that God really challenged me on from these verses. Embrace pruning. Waste time with God, practice presence, and practice love. Which ones struck you? Do you know what? It would be very, very easy to remain a servant. In some ways, though it sounds like very hard work, it's kind of an easier choice. I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've had times I've gone to God and said, um, I'd really, really love your, dis- your like, guidance, God. Can you tell me, is this, is this a yes to this situation to go that way or a no to this situation and go that way? And I'm really, really, really going to listen. And I'll be very honest with you, there's been a few times in my life, God has gone, your choice. And I've hated it. I've stood there going, no, no, not an acceptable answer, Lord. (laughs) I don't want your choice. I want yes, I want no. I want to be a servant. I want you to be my master. You tell me what to do, and I'll just go off and do it. But God's gone, no, your choice. I'll go with you. It's his way of challenging me, not to just obey blindly, which is a really good thing to do. I'm not slagging it. But to grow in maturity to treat God as friends. This is the invitation that Jesus is extending to us. We can pursue friendship with him because he has made friendship possible. Through Easter, he made the way. Through Pentecost, he poured out his spirit. 
And we have his presence right here, right now. And whatever stage of relationship with God you are at, we can grow deeper in friendship with him because of that gift of his spirit. Pete in the band, can I invite you to join us? In a moment, I'm going to offer us a chance to pray and respond. Maybe as you've listened to this, I really hope the Holy Spirit's been whispering to you much louder than me. Maybe as you've been listening to this, something has jumped out at you, a part of your life, maybe a place where you need to get right with God, or maybe a place where you've been overextending yourself with something that seems quite harmless, but actually it's just crowding out your whole life, crowding out other friendships, crowding out time with God. And God is gently putting his finger on it and saying, shall we prune? Or maybe you're thinking, do you know what? I think I'm ready to pray that brave prayer of, Lord, I want deeper friendship with you. So I invite you to prune me. I've been praying that prayer recently. <laughs> I thought I can't really preach on it without, you know, <laughs> practicing it. And I love how gentle the Father is and how trustworthy he is when we pray prayers like that. He's not going to come in with a sledgehammer, but he might come in with an invitation for growth and change. Is that the question you need to ask the Holy Spirit today? Or maybe as you've been listening, you think, I'd like to invite the Holy Spirit to help me be more present to God, to waste more time so I can hear his voice, get hold of his plans, know how to respond and influence, deepen friendship because I know him better. I know what he sounds like when he laughs. I know how he lights up when he sees an opportunity or an enjoyment. And actually the Holy Spirit is one of the best teachers in that. Or maybe, as I've been talking about the link between friendship with Jesus and friendship with others, which hopefully you'll explore in much more depth later in this series, maybe you had someone pop right into your head. Someone you think, oh really? Loving them affects how deeply our friendship develops really and maybe this morning you want to bring that person that relationship to Jesus and ask for help restoration forgiveness a way forward no pressure but if friendship with God is something you'd like to grow in, I'd love to invite you to stand where you are right now and we're going to pray we're going to invite the Holy Spirit Before I start praying for us, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds just to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. What is it that he is saying to you? What is it that you would like to respond to him? Just take that 30 seconds now. Have a conversation with him. Holy Spirit, the presence of God with us, thank you that you are here. Thank you that you make friendship, deep relationship with the Lord possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you are speaking and moving in our lives. Lord, my prayer, and for those in this room that echo it is, we welcome you to put your finger on the places we need to be pruned. Not because we're masochists, 
but because, Lord, we want to be fruitful for you. We want to have space in our lives for you and the people you love. So, Lord, prune us. Lord, I also invite you to come and teach us how to be present to you. In this coming week, would you be present to us in a way that we can understand and hear and stir up a hunger that makes us have to respond, to practice your presence in our workplaces, in our commutes, in our shopping, in our childcare, in our study, in our socialising. Help us to have the attitude of Abraham, walking and talking with you. And finally, Lord, for those who have people in their minds, they would like to see a shift in relationship with. Lord, would you give them strength? Lord, would you give us grace? Would you help us to forgive? And would you bring restoration? Ultimately, Lord, we want to be fruitful for you. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Come give us one step we can take forward in friendship with you.